Welcome to the I Am Persuaded podcast with Travis Shelton. Our desire is to provide weekly encouragement and biblical truths so that you too can be persuaded that He is able. Thanks for joining us on this episode. Now, let's hear what Pastor Travis has to say. Welcome back to the I Am Persuaded podcast, and thank you so much for clicking on this episode and taking the time out of your day to listen to it and just take a few minutes and meditate upon Scripture with me. And so I appreciate each and every one of you more than you know. And so thank you just for encouragement. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being faithful. And I do greatly appreciate that. I hope you've had a great summer. As I said in the last episode, I believe uh, we have had a very busy summer just with uh, youth ministry and just various things in our life. And so it's been a busy time, but it's been a successful ministry uh, summer. And so summers and youth ministry are always wild and they are full blown wide open. And so, but it's been a phenomenal ministry and a phenomenal summer. I should say, in the ministry, as many people and teenagers have made decisions for Christ. And so we've had a great summer, and I trust that you have as well. And so with that being said, we're going to hop into a psalm today. And so last episode, I believe I told you we were just going to go on each episode, just psalm by psalm, and see how long we go. There's a lot of psalms. Some psalms are very short, just a few verses. Some psalms are very long, in fact. We have the longest chapter in the Bible in the book of Psalms, which is Psalm 119. And so the Psalms are more than just a man crying out to God in despair, but there's theology in the Psalms. There is truth in the Psalms for us to glean, for us to apply to our life. And so I, that's my prayer. As we spend the next few episodes, I don't know how long we'll go, just looking at various Psalms, I believe we can learn something, and I believe that we can grow, and I believe really the main thought we can walk away with is Jesus is worthy of our praise. I mean, you see the Psalms, they're set to music as how they originally were written, and there's a lot of them singing praises and songs unto Jesus and unto God. And so we, as we read these Psalms, we should have a sense of worship that wells up in us that just causes us to worship and praise the great name of Jesus. And so we looked at Psalm 1 last episode. If you haven't listened to it, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it first because Psalm 1 and 2 really just open the scene for the entire book of Psalms. And so they kind of feed off of each other. Psalm 1 is fairly short with six verses. Psalm 2 is a little bit more lengthy and it has 12 verses. And so it doubles in length, but I believe we'll spend about the same amount of time as we did in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 because they kind of feed off of each other with various themes about the same. So I'll read it as you drive or as you sit there. And if you're sitting drinking a cup of coffee, wherever you're at, I would ask you to get your Bibles out and you can follow along with me as we just go verse by verse through Psalm chapter two. Verse number one says this, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree unto the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. 
Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and ye perish from the way. When His wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. And so we have 12 verses in Psalm chapter 2. And in these 12 verses, we can break it up into four different sections of three verses. So we have verses 1, 2, and 3. That's rebellion. We have verses 4, 5, and 6. That's God's answer. We have verses 7, 8, and 9. That is really the inheritance that is to be given to Jesus, the throne that's going to be set up in the future. Then you have verses 10, 11, and 12, which is really a call to repentance and reconciliation. And so Psalm 2 is a beautiful psalm. It is a psalm that really carries off of Psalm 1 and sets up the entire uh, message and theme and theology of the entire Psalter. And so all of the psalms kind of piggyback off of what we're about to look at in Psalm chapter 2. And so I did encourage you already, if you haven't listened to the Psalm chapter 1, I would encourage you to go back and do just that because it is going to be vital as we go to Psalm chapter 2. Really, Psalm chapter 1, here's the picture. A man has two paths. A man can follow the course of the world or a man can follow the way of Christ and the way of God and the path of God. Now, I told you in the first episode when we looked at Psalm 1, that when Jesus or somewhere in Scripture paints a picture of two different options, one option always leads to death, one option always leads to eternity separated from God, and then one option always leads to Jesus, always leads to eternal life in Him. And so throughout the entire Old Testament, what we have seen is there has the people have been looking for what the Bible calls a promised redeemer. Some will call him the expected one. And so they would know in the Old Testament to be asking for and to be looking for this expected one. That expected one is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible in Genesis chapter 3, I believe verse 15 there, is the first mention of the gospel where God curses Satan, curses Eve, curses man. Um, and there he says there's going to be a day when Jesus will crush the head of Satan, the serpent, and he will bruise the heel of Jesus. That's the first mention of the gospel. And so since that very moment, since Jesus, or since God rather, put in place the plan in Genesis 3 to redeem fallen man, everyone in the Old Testament has been looking for this expected one to come. Now, the plan of salvation was set in place far before the world was ever spoken into existence. It's said in Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the world, this plan was in place. And so the plan that Jesus would come, he would be crucified, he would give his life for the sin debt of mankind. That's been the plan since the very beginning. We just read about it in Genesis chapter 3 for the first time as God is pronouncing his curses there and then he speaks of the future fulfillment in Jesus that is to come. We read about it in Genesis 12 with Abraham. We read about it in Genesis chapter 49 with the tribe of Judah. We read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 18 where there's going to be a prophet that's greater than Moses. Then we see the, the promise that is to come in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Really, really the first 17, 16 verses, God promises David 
that there is going to come from his lineage, a king that will never cease. There's going to be a king that will never be removed from the throne. And that promise to be fulfilled in the lineage of David is none other than Jesus Christ. You see his lineage in the first chapter of Matthew and the first chapter of Luke. And it all ties together how the entire Old Testament fits till we arrive at King Jesus bursting on the scene in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. And so, all of the Old Testament has been looking for this expected one. So, Psalm 2 kind of gives us this royal messianic backdrop as we enter the psalm, as it speaks of future fulfillment in Jesus. Now, a little backstory to Psalm 2. It really connects to Psalm 1, as I've already said, but we under, it's not, so you can see at the top of your Bible, it doesn't really say who wrote it, but Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted psalms in the entire New Testament. The Gospels speak of it. Paul speaks of it. So the New Testament quotes Psalm 2 often, and we get the answer as to who wrote it in Acts chapter 4 and verse 25, it says this, Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the other people of Israel who gathered together. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. But did you notice that in verse 25? By who the mouth of thy servant David hath said. And here he starts quoting Psalm 2 verse 1. Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? So what he's saying is, what, what the writer of Acts is saying, Luke, is saying is that David is the author of Psalm chapter 2. Then he quotes verse 1. So let's read verse 1 together. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The word imagine is the same word that's used in Psalm chapter 1 for the, the one that's following after Christ. So verse 2 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in the law of the Lord doth he meditate day and night. So you get the picture in Psalm 1 that the godly, the one who has followed the path in the New Testament vernacular of Jesus, who's placed their faith in the gospel, they meditate, they dwell on, they take camp in the law of the Lord or the scriptures in the Bible. And so what Psalm 2 says from the very beginning, those who do not take the path of Jesus, here's their fulfillment, here's how they live. They imagine, they dwell, they set camp in a vain or an empty thing. And so something that you've probably asked or been asked or you've asked the question, why does it seem like the world? Why does it seem like the American government? Why does it seem like the teachers at the public university? Why does it seem like the Facebook articles and the news articles? Why does it seem like the world is pushing Jesus out of the picture? Well, we get the answer here in Psalm chapter 2. So if you've ever asked that question, if you've thought that question maybe in the past year, and I know I have, why is the world so against Jesus? Psalm chapter 2 answers that question. And here's the picture. If we separate Jesus and the church from our government, we are destined for judgment. 
Don't misunderstand Psalm 2. If we separate God and the Bible from any form of government, from any form of leadership even, that group of people, that nation, nations are kind of the context of Psalm 2, but that people group, that nation, that family that rejects Jesus and his word and his gospel are destined, are doomed for judgment. So verse 2 says, why do the heathen rage? And the people imagine or dwell in an empty thing. Here it is. The kings, the rulers of the earth, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And so you see that in Psalm 1, they were just meditating. They were, verse 1, it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. So in Psalm 1, verse 1, the picture of the ungodly is they're just taking counsel from the ungodly. They're just taking counsel from the world. Now Psalm 2, they're living that lifestyle out. And so they are the counsel of the ungodly. They are the counsel that's against the Lord. It says in verse verse 2 there, and the rulers take counsel together against, notice this, against the Lord and against his anointed, against his church, against his followers, against his people, against Jesus. The world, the heathen, is against him. And so you see this all the time. We have people who their entire life is to disprove and discredit what we believe in Jesus and his word. They are, the word rage there, filled with vengeance, filled with anger, filled with animosity, filled with hatred toward Jesus. And today, it seems as though it's illegal to just simply believe in Jesus. You are called names, you are made fun of, you were discredited, you were not listened to, all because we come in the name of Jesus. It doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter your color, doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what background you're from in the church, uh, what denomination you're from. If you claim the name of Jesus today from ma the majority of the world, you're looked down upon. Now, why is that? Well, the heathen rages. And so that, what Luke was writing about in Acts chapter 4 is kind of the fulfillment of this verse. He saw a governor, he saw a king, he saw a nation rise up against the anointed, rise up against Jesus Christ. So it says here in verse 2, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. Luke and the and the apostles, they witnessed that in the, in the gospel 2,000 years ago. They witnessed people come and take Jesus. They witnessed him, them scourge him. They witnessed him stand before a crowd of people and be offered Barabbas or Jesus, and the crowd chose Jesus. They witnessed everyone as the heathen raged to crucify him, to crucify him, to do away with him. They, the, the, the writer of Acts witnessed that. And so this verse has fulfillment in Luke's day, but it also has fulfillment in our day 2,000 years after Jesus' resurrection. Because Jesus has said, those that bear his name, they will be persecuted. They will be as counted as the lamb to the slaughter because they hated him first. If they hated him first, they're going to hate those who come in his name which is us as believers. And so, child of God, it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to want to fight back on Facebook with all those that are calling names and saying things that we just completely disagree with. But it said it would happen in Psalm chapter 2, verse number 1, verse number 2. The rulers take counsel 
against the Lord. It's what's going to happen. It happened in Jesus's day, and it's going to happen in our day. Verse 3 says, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cord from us. Here's what the psalmist is saying, David is saying in verse number 3. There will come a day when the heathen will be so angry, he'll say, I don't want any ties. I don't want any relation with the name Jesus. And so what he's saying is, I want to be Lord of my life. They're refusing to make Jesus Lord because when we make Jesus Lord, we have new passions, new desires. We, we now serve Jesus. And so they're saying, let's take and cast and break the bands asunder and cast away their cords from us because we want nothing to do with this man named Jesus. We want nothing to do with his name. We want nothing to do with his mission. So let's get all of his rulership, all of his kingship, all of his name off of us. So that is what the heathen will say. But then look at verse four. Here's what God says. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. So verses 1 and 2 are what the heathen will do. Verse 3 is what the heathen will say. Verses 4 and 5 is what God will do. Verse 6 is what God will say. And so let's unpack that together for the next few minutes. Verse 4, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. And here's what I find interesting. A lot of times my tendency when someone is disagreeing with what I preach or what I say or what I believe, my tendency is to get upset. My tendency is to want to argue back. That's just the flesh, I believe, inside of me. But God Instead, this verse paints the picture. God doesn't even get up off of his throne and worry about what the heathen is saying. The verse says he laughs. The verse says he chuckles. And I, I read one commentator and they said this, God literally chuckles at the imbeciles who are acting out in rage against his son. He chuckles. He's not concerned with it. He's not worried with it. He's had. A, he's got a plan in place. The plan is to redeem fallen man, that whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's his plan. And so here's what I find very interesting, and really I kind of chuckle at this as well, because the agnostic or the atheist or the one that the heathen in this verse that's trying to disprove and discredit Christianity, they might think that they have the last word or even the last laugh. They might think that they've proved through all their research and all their work that they finally discredited the name of Jesus and they have the last laugh. Well, verse 4 says, God gets the last laugh. God is not in heaven right now. Worrying as the heathen is raging in the government of America. God's not twisting his thumbs. God's not sweating on his brow. God is chuckling at what the commentator said, the imbeciles, as they rage against the Lord. And then verse 5, Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Here it is. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And so now we see God's plan against the heathen and what he's going to do. So he says, verse number 5, Then shall he speak unto them his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Then he says, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. What's he saying? Oh, he's speaking of Jesus. 
The rulers will claim that they're going to throw the Lord's change and his, his sovereign rule off of them in verse 3. And here's the Lord's response. Hey, I have installed my king on Zion, on my holy mountain. I have installed my plan that cannot be removed. And see, here's Satan's plan. Here's the heathen's plan is to remove and to revoke the plan of God. But what God is saying in verse number six, what I have said, it's going to happen. So I'm going to sit in heaven and I'm going to chuckle and I'm not going to be worried and I'm not going to fret because Jesus is already on the throne. He, and at this point in Psalms, he's already promised the throne. The plan is already in place. Now we are looking back at the gospel as Psalm 2 was looking forward to the gospel. Jesus has already come. Jesus has already bled. Jesus has already took upon himself the sin debt of mankind, and he's offered us the free gift of salvation. Now he sits at the right hand of God, and him too. He's not worried. He's not fretting. He's not anxious because his plan, God's plan, already in place, already happening, already waiting, the future eternal fulfillment. Then we get to verse 7. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. So he's speaking to David here. Thou art my son, but he's looking kind of to that future fulfillment in Jesus. And so God is speaking to David, but about David's lineage. Because you can see in your Bible, uh, son is capital. So we're speaking of Jesus here. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So verse 7, I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me. God's Messiah now responds to the nations who have rejected him and to the God who has chosen him. And so he's speaking here kind of of the David, uh, the lineage of David. And so you read that if you want to take some time in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I believe it's the first 16 verses where God is promising things to David. And then he eventually speaks of Solomon rebuilding the temple. But then he says, there's going to be a king, David. There's going to be one that's going to come from your lineage, even from your from your seed, that will sit on your throne, and here it is, here's the word, and reign forever. Now, David, he didn't reign forever. Solomon takes the throne. He builds the temple. He does not reign forever. And the kings and kings and kings after David and Solomon do not reign forever. But friend, 2,000 years ago, born of a virgin in a small town in Bethlehem in a manger, was a king. Every small, minute detail in the lineage of Jesus fit the bill for him to be born in the tribe of Judah from the lineage of David, fit every criteria that he had to fit, the place, the time, the season, everything, that the people that would come visit him all fulfilled the correct prophecy for the Messiah of the world to be born. So, thou art my son. David, you're my son. But from your lineage, David, there's going to be one that sets up forever kingship and rulership, and his name is Jesus. And once he sets that up, nothing, absolutely nothing, will take away or do away with the plan that Jesus has set in place. Then verse 8, ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. 
and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. What he's speaking of here is future fulfillment, the judgment that is to come. Look at verse 9, or listen. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So in verses 1, 2, and 3, we have the heathen who's raging. We have the heathen who is uh, trying to overthrow the plan of God and who is trying to uh, discredit the plan of God. Verses 4, 5, and 6, we have, well, here's God's answer. He's laughing. And God has set a plan in place, which is Jesus. Verses 7, 8, and 9, we have the response of the Messiah. He's going to receive an inheritance. And in that inheritance comes his judgment on all of those who have not believed. That includes the heathen. That includes those who have lived their entire life and never placed their faith in Jesus. And here's what he says, verse 9. Thou shalt break them. This is Jesus. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Friend, that is a very vivid picture of what is to come in the future judgment that awaits this earth. And so there is... We are living right now in what's called the age or the space of grace where people can, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But there's coming a day in eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end times. And we have looked at that on the podcast. If you want to go back and listen to those episodes, there's coming a day in eschatology when Jesus will return, take home his bride, and then there's what's called seven years of tribulation. You read about it in Revelation. You get a little bit of it in First and Second Thessalonians. You get a few bits and pieces in other places in the New Testament. You can read about it in Daniel 70th week. And so it's interweave it's all throughout the Bible. And so this seven year tribulation period is literally hell on earth. And what is it? Well it's God pouring out his wrath on unbelievers. And a lot of people don't like to think about a God that's judge, that judges. They don't like to think about a God that's full of wrath. But at the end of the day, we've lived for 2,000 years in a space where God has been nothing but gracious. Where God has been extending every single day to the lost world his invitation of salvation. And the Bible says in Romans that all we have to do is call upon the name of the Lord. The Bible says in Romans 10.9 that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For 2,000 years, that has been the invitation. And friend, Peter said the coming of the Lord was soon, that the end times was soon. And so if he said that 2,000 so years ago, 1918 so years ago, it's close today. And so we are awaiting, living with expectancy, the soon return of Jesus. And here's the truth. For all the heathens, God's laughing because there is a promise to come in their life. And as sad as it is, as gut-riching as it is, we don't want anyone to experience this. We want all to come to faith in Jesus. But the sobering reality is this. There's going to be people, probably people that you know, who refuse Jesus, who rage against Jesus, who reject Jesus. And here's what Jesus says. I'm going to break them like a rod of iron. I'm going to dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You ever dropped a piece of uh, a piece of pottery or a glass cup? It goes into a thousand pieces. 
So what God is saying in that tribulation period, when I'm pouring out my judgment upon them, I'm going to literally crush them into the ground. And if you go back and listen, I'm not going to get into that today, but if you go back and listen to all that is going to take place in that tribulation period, it's sobering. And if you don't know Jesus, you should start examining your life. Start looking at the gospel and say, is this something I want to place my faith in? Count the cost is what the Bible says in the New Testament in the book of Luke. We're to count the cost as disciples of Jesus to see if we should follow him or not. And I believe every single time you count the cost, you're going to say it's worth following Jesus than accepting the alternative. Because there is coming a day when God's wrath will be poured out upon all of the earth, upon all of the earth. And all those who don't know Jesus will be crushed like the potter's vessel into the ground. Verses 10, 11, and 12, the last thought. It's a picture of reconciliation. Here it is. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Watch what you're going to say. Watch what you're going to do. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Listen, take counsel. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Verse 12, kiss the son, Jesus, lest he be angry and you perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little. Here it is. Blessed are all that put their trust in him. Verse 10, be wise therefore, O ye kings. So don't be the heathen that's raging. Don't be the foolish imbecile as the one commentator said. Be instructed. Then verse 11, serve the Lord with fear. That fear is not laying in, and trembling in your boots at the sight of God. It's a reverential awe. Because like Isaiah, when he got into the presence of God, he says, woe is me. For I am undone. Because when we get close to Jesus, as we grow in what's called gospel-centeredness, we become more aware of our sinfulness and we become more aware of God's holiness. When we see how holy God is, we see how sinful we are and just how much we need Him. And that, my friend, instills the proper fear or the reverential awe that we could say of God in our life. So verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We should rejoice as believers in Jesus that we will never be stepped on and broken on like the rod of iron or like the potter's vessel into the ground because we know Jesus. Now here is the last thought out of verse 12 and it's a beautiful picture. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little. Here it is. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Here's the good news today, my friend. If you have never placed your faith in Jesus, if you have been the heathen that's raging and trying to overthrow the plan of God and don't want his chains around you and you've tried to cast them off, there's still time. We're still living as of right now in that space and age of grace where whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's simple. So Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. I repent. I make a U-turn of my sins. I want to follow you. And here it is. Jesus, today, I believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection. I put my whole faith, my entire hope, all of my trust, Jesus, in you. I believe you died for me, I believe you were buried, and I believe you rose again three days later. And today, I believe that you extend to me the free gift of salvation. And friend, when you do that, when you put your, as verse 12 says, put your trust, your hope, your faith in him, you'll be saved. You won't have to experience the judgment that is to come as you don't know Jesus. 
So I want to close with this. I was listening to a podcast the other day and really just studying the name of God. He speaks in Exodus to Moses. He says, I am that I am. And so he speaks that he's going to reveal his name to him. And so in the name of God, there is power. And so, friend, Psalm 2 really paints this picture. Philippians chapter 2 kind of gives us the picture. And it says in Philippians 2 that there's coming a day that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the podcast that I was listening to, he made the statement. He said, you know, I don't know who's going to say the name. He said, but I can almost imagine it. The great white throne judgment, if that's when it's going to take place. Every unbeliever, every agnostic, every atheist, every scoffer, every heathen that raged, everyone that made fun of every believer in Jesus, everyone that promoted racism and promoted hate and promoted um, just idolatry and promoted God-haters and promoted all of these evil, wicked practices and abortion, all of them that promoted all of this sin and all of this wickedness on the earth. There's going to be a day when they stand before Jesus. And someone, maybe God the Father, Maybe Gabriel or Michael the archangel. Maybe a saint. I don't know. But they're just going to say the name Jesus. And when the name Jesus is uttered, every one of those, every heathen that raged, every scoffer that scoffed, every mocker that mocked, friend will hit their knees. And when God utters or the angel utters or a saint utters Jesus, they'll hit their knees And in that moment, they will confess Jesus is Lord. But at that moment, friend, it's too late. You see, Jesus, in in his earthly ministry, as he was going to the cross, as he was entering Jerusalem the last week of his life, you read about it in much of the last half of the Gospels, he entered on a donkey. Custom of that day was if a king was going to enter a city of unknown territory and he rode a donkey, he'd come in peace. He'd come in grace. But if a king returned on a white horse, he was coming to declare vengeance and show his anger and show his wrath. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, rode into Jerusalem to die for your sins, friend, on a donkey, symbolizing the king of kings is offering you peace and is offering you grace. But friend, at his second coming, you read about it in Revelation, he will return from heaven on a white horse. And when he returns on that white horse, the custom is the same. He's declaring war on every unbeliever and heathen that has raged for years and years and years. But friend, here's the beautiful thing. Last part of verse 12. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. You don't have to wait until someone utters the name Jesus at the great white throne judgment to believe in Jesus. At that point, you will believe, but eternally it's too late. Today, you have the opportunity to place your faith, hope, and trust in him. And friend, today, if you are saved, this should give you encouragement that what God said would happen is happening. The heathen's raging. But take comfort that God's not sitting in heaven fretting and worrying and sweating. He's laughing. He has a plan. And guess what, friend? His plan is already in place. Jesus is already on the throne. Jesus has already been resurrected. He's still saving. And we are awaiting the day we get to see him and receive our glorified body, cast all our crowns at his feet at the judgment seat of Christ, and spend eternity with him forever. 
I hope you've enjoyed Psalm 2, and I look forward to studying probably Psalm 3 in the next episode. So friend, as always, have a great Friday, and God bless. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the I Am Persuaded podcast, please consider subscribing and share with your friends. We pray this is a blessing in your life. God bless.